welcome to SLP Full Disclosure, the podcast for SLPs by SLPs, where we deep dive into a variety of topics to empower, educate, and entertain. Join us each episode to hear from expert guests and topics that matter most. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and let's jump into this episode. Hello, and welcome to SLP Full Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Jennifer Martin, and joining me is my co-host, Alyssa Hunter. Hi, everybody. So today we are so excited to have a very special guest on our podcast. Well, I guess we say this every time, Jennifer, right? We're always like, of course. we're so excited. But also, I think it's also kind of a personality of an SLP to just get very excited about cool things. Um, so today we have Leanne Porter on our podcast, who is the host of Speech Uncensored. And Leanne is just a wealth of knowledge. She has been practicing as an SLP since 2013. And since then, she's worked across settings in outpatient, acute, inpatient, you name it. Um, Leanne has presented for ASHA on different topics surrounding dysphagia, such as how the respiratory system and cough influence dysphagia, a review of literature on dysphagia exercises, and generating measurable dysphagia goals. Also, she's contributed to continuing education for multidisciplinary teams on cognitive retraining, stress management for rehab therapists, and SLP scope of practice, which we all know everyone needs a little more education on. (laughs) So Leanne, as I said, hosts a wonderful podcast called Speech Uncensored. And through the podcast, believe it or not, she actually provides the opportunity for CEUs through um, the organization Speech Therapy PD. And so if you like what you hear today, then you can keep learning from her, which is a super exciting opportunity. So thank you for being here today, Leanne. We're so lucky to have you here to share your knowledge with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is a real treat. I really enjoy the opportunity to be on the other side of the microphone. And um, usually I'm the one asking all the questions. And so this is going to be like, oh, no, now I have to like answer things. (laughs) It is different depending on what side you're on. And you know, I have listened to your podcast many times. It is very well done. I have learned a lot from your podcast. And before we dive into our questions for you, one thing I am dying to know is who did the cover, the artwork for your podcast? It is beautiful. It is. Oh, I'm so happy with it. I was following a med student who's based over in the UK. Um, I believe her name is Teruse. I've never heard it said, so I might be mispronouncing it. Deepest apologies. Um, So she was in med school at the time. And just as a stress relief, just an enjoyment factor, um, she's an artist. And so she would do medical drawings and just post them on Instagram. And I was like, these are beautiful. These are amazing. I love them so much. She has such a great eye. And I love the colors that she was using and her style. So I just reached out and I was like, do you take commissions? Because... I have this idea. And she was like, yeah, sure. So she worked with me and I gave her the ideas and some images and talked to her about what I liked. And that's what she drew for me. I am going to get this name from you after because I saw this and thought, I want this on my wall. It is so beautiful. And so it immediately caught my eye. And I I love that it was your brainchild because it was, it's just beautiful. And she did a fabulous job. So anyway, I just had to ask before I forgot because it was, I, I need to know who, who did this. It's so wonderful. 
But getting back to our questions, um, you are very accomplished, as Alyssa shared with your bio, and you've done a lot, and even things that weren't mentioned in there that are on your website that you've done as well. And I always like to know what what led somebody to start, you know, to want to start this profession and come into this profession, and then how did you know what you wanted to specialize in? Did you know, or did it just, you know, one door open, one door open, and that's you just kept walking through them? Yes, basically, pretty much that. I'll go with that. <laughs> and next, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I came into the field late. I got my bachelor's in international studies, and then I got a postgraduate diploma in public health. And so I knew what attracted me to public health was that I felt like it was um, getting into the community and giving them the tools to make informed health-related decisions so that they could have their best health outcomes and most enjoyable life. Um, but working in public health, uh, takes many different roles that I didn't know when, when I got into the program and the program was really developing people to work, um, through the government at a much higher level. Now they still were very much a proponent of bringing, um, the people involved in the decision-making who these plans would impact to the table to participate in making these policies at the very high level, but I wanted to work more one-on-one with people at community level. So I was talking over some of that with my mom and both my parents were educators. They're retired now. So they spent their career working in education, teaching. And so my mom worked at the elementary school level and she was very familiar with school-based SLPs. And so she was like, well, do that. You, you'd be a good SLP. She knew, um, she spoke very highly of the SLP at, um, the school that she worked at for many years and, um, was like, look into it. So I did. And I got into the grad program. I had no idea how competitive it is. I had no idea how tough it is. Um, and I thought I was going to go and become a school-based SLP. And when I took the classes, um, they just blew my mind of the variety that we could work with the medical courses, the courses in voice and dysphagia were so interesting. I loved learning about the body. It was incredible. And I was hooked. And then I was like, well, I guess I need to work with adults. (laughs) This is going to be my thing. Well, and it's what you say, I think is so important for people just starting out in the field to understand and realize is that you don't, what you think you want to do may not be what you want to do. And you you had this idea that, oh, I want to work in schools. That's what I thought I was going to do and have taken a completely different path. And so I think that's just like you said, there's so many things. I always tell people like, well, what do you, what does an SLP do? I said, everything from the neck up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just <laughs> everything that involves all of this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you had one idea and then pivoted to the, to what you ultimately ended up loving doing. Yeah. Yeah. I've been really, really fortunate. Um, and you asked about specializing and I, I don't feel like I do. And I don't feel like I can as an outpatient SLP because I get such a wide variety of interesting referrals and diagnoses. Um, I've had to treat chronic cough, which I had no idea was a thing and a thing that we did and were responsible for until I dug into the literature and found like, wow, SLPs are publishing a lot of really great research and um, information on therapy and techniques for working with this population. And that just that kind of a specialized niche is so fascinating to me. Like 
Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an interesting trend we actually see with a lot of our guests and, you know, we love interviewing very interesting, highly successful SLPs like yourself is that, that learning never stops. Like not only in the beginning, do you maybe change paths from where you thought you were, but on the job, you're continuing to learn all the time. And that's what makes you so successful. And that's what keeps you interested and loving your job because there's still always something to learn, which is really important that, you know, we can't know everything, but if you know where to look and you know how to research, then you can get the answers you need. And so that's a really good example of that. But I know that one of the focuses of today's episode is one of what I would call one of your specialties. I know you said you don't specialize, but we'll call it a specialty for right now is talking about dysphagia management and outpatient rehab. So, you know, a lot of our SLPs are similar to you that they're thinking they want to go to school or maybe they started school but do want to move into a more medical setting and dysphagia can end up being one of those roadblocks that they want to become more confident in. So let's just start from the beginning. Tell us about the population you work with and treat for dysphagia. Sure. Um, The population that I get in my outpatient is, um, as with probably most of them, based on the community that it's set in. We get people referred to us that live nearby, generally speaking, Um, or we are the closest facility to where they live. Um, Because sometimes we do get people from farther out of town. And so they like more rural areas and then they come in. Um, So part of it, I think, is closest location that their insurance accepts as well. So the um, they're usually geriatric community dwelling. So, of course, they're they're living at home, Um, typically ambulatory, but not always. And so when I say ambulatory, I mean that that also encapsulates that they're otherwise generally healthy or healthy enough to be able to, to walk themselves and not rely on a wheelchair or a walker or other thing like that. Um, so yeah, they're otherwise, and this is very generally speaking, like this isn't always the case, but generally healthy, meaning that they don't have um, a current infection or um, experiencing some other kind of debility. Uh, they can have a wide variety of etiologies and unique past medical histories. So I'll see people after head and neck, head and neck stroke. Did I just say head and neck stroke? Good job, Leanne. <laughs> head and neck cancer and stroke. Um, for the head and neck cancer people, it might be like a year or two out or sometimes more from the incident. So what's interesting about outpatient is you don't always see people close to the incident. It may be a while later and something has changed or something has happened or the patient is just like fed up with something and they're complaining about it to their primary care on one of their yearly health visits. So the primary care physician will just send a referral and I'm figuring out how I can help and what they need in that moment. So it's sometimes it's not always related to something that happened within the past month for that patient. Yeah. And I really love what you said about not really being able to specialize or name a population in outpatient. I think that's important for people to hear and know who are thinking about going to outpatient because you're right. You treat who walks in and you don't always know who that person's going to be. And I remember many times when doing outpatient, when I would, you know, start reading the notes and thinking, oh, you know, the medical record of like, oh gosh, who's going to work with this person? Oh, I'm the only SLP here. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know what you said, where you start 
again, I better learn about this and and study it and figure it out because you don't know who's going to walk in. So you really have to be almost a generalist in some ways with this population. So mm-hmm. I think that's important for people who are thinking, oh, I maybe want to go into outpatient to realize that, you know, there definitely are clinics that specialize in certain areas, but if it's connected to a hospital, typically it's not, it's, you're going to take mm-hmm. whatever patient comes in. Yeah. And they would probably actually like it if I saw pediatrics, but I had to, I had to put a boundary there because, um, we did not have sufficient materials to work with pediatrics. Um, I also believe in having pediatric friendly furniture. So like small, small tables, small chairs for their, you know, smaller bodies to sit in. And we just, we don't have the space for that. We don't, you know, there. And plus I talked with our other PTs and OTs. So I was like, you know, if we get a child here and they would need PT and OT, like, could you treat them? And they were like, no, not really. We just do adults. So then I was like, well, then why, why would I like, why would I shortchange that child? They would have to go to another facility for any PT and OT. So, um, yeah, that, that was a boundary. So you like, you might work an outpatient for a hospital and they want you to see the whole age range as well. So it's not just whatever diagnosis or referral walks in the door. It might be whatever age as well. Yeah, you're right. And one thing as well that we work with so many new grads and many of them, as you probably know, they really want to go into the medical field. That is what they want to do. They are gung-ho. They don't want to settle for anything less and they want to work with adults, work with the dysphagia, but it's hard. It's really hard to enter that field as a new grad, a lot harder than it used to be. So, of course, you've learned a lot by doing in your time in the field, but what are some things that you might recommend what, if, as, to a new grad that what can they do to gain that experience that they need to work in this area? I think it's a combination um, of listening to conversations like on podcasts and having conversations as well. So it's one thing to like receive that information. And then it's another thing to try to use that information verbally. And that's one thing I learned, like when I started my podcast, it was like, oh, okay, I have all this information in my head. And then when I went to go say it, it was a lot harder, like explaining my thought processes, using the medical terminology. Um, Yeah. And so having the conversations is really key. So having a small group of other SLPs um, that meet monthly or online or whatever, and just talking about case presentations. And so part of that is, you know, having a network and having maybe a mentor or, you know, somebody who is working in that setting, who is happy to bring a case that they've been working on and talk about it with you. And it might be a couple people, it might just be two people. Um, But I think listening and talking about these things are really key and not something that is, um, at least having the conversations isn't something that's just out there, you just insert in, that's something you're going to have to be proactive on and build and initiate. When you actually have a great resource on your website that is for this, which I thought was so lovely. And I'm thinking, where was this when I was getting out of school? And it's the Future Colleague Collaborative. Mm -hmm. And I think this is such a wonderful idea and really touches on everything you just said. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? Because I think this is a wonderful resource for anybody who is looking to enter the medical field and and learn more about it. 
Yeah. So the Future Collie Collaborative um, was born in the age of the pandemic when um, if you were a student at that time and you had your externship or internship cut short, if you were in the medical setting or even in school based, you know, suddenly you're like, oh, like I, I came here to get this you know, experience in the real world setting. And now they're telling me I can't come in. How will I get this experience? How will I feel prepared and confident in my skills if I don't get to test it out before I graduate? So to try to support um, our student learners who will soon be our future colleagues, um, we created this uh, gathering where um, clinical SLPs would present on a medical or school-based topic for 30 minutes um, well, within that 30 minutes, they were going to present on the topic and give um, like a case study. And then as a listener, you would use your critical thinking and use the knowledge that they had just presented on to um, process through that case and talk about it. So like we held it on Zoom and also a Facebook Live so that you could participate in the Facebook Live um, by like typing in your answers and your questions. And then um, the speakers signed up knowing that it wasn't um, a hope that they would also be available for fielding follow-up questions and being available as a source to the students who chose to participate. Um, even though it was geared towards students, I saw a lot of my colleagues join in as well and were like, wow, I just learned something tonight. Like this was so great. And I love that, that as you've mentioned, Alyssa, like we're always, we're constantly learning. And we, I think we learn the best from each other. It's one of my favorite places to learn is from another SLP. Um, and I don't look for SLPs that um, have more uh, time experience than me. That doesn't always equate to like, oh, well, they must know something and think that SLPs with less time experience than me don't have as much knowledge. Like, no, one of my first guests on the podcast um, was only in the field for like three years. And she came on to talk about working with um, the ventilated population because she worked in a facility where that was really abundant. I know next to nothing about that because I work in a facility that doesn't have that. So really your experience is what you're exposed to. And because we can have such a wide interaction, you're going to meet people who know a lot more about something than you do and vice versa. Like we can fill in each other's gaps. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a great point that time does not necessarily equate to mastery of a topic that you don't have. There's such a widespread of knowledge in our field that the, depending on what jobs you've taken on or what where your passions lie, you might only be in the field for a few years, but have such extensive knowledge about a topic that another SLP who has been in the field for many more years, um, you know, doesn't know anything about. I mean, that happens all the time for me with bilingualism and bilingual assessment, which is one of my areas or AAC implementation. And, you know, you could be in the field for 20 years and have never run into that before. And so it's really, I think, this idea of communicating with each other and seeking each other's resources is some really great advice for myself and everyone to carry with them that, you know, the, the expert might be someone else that you run into or seek out. It might not be a research article every time. Um, and so that's wonderful that you've really facilitated that community. Um, but speaking of communication and community, I know another thing that 
you know, is a challenge for people when they enter a medical setting is thinking about all of that interdisciplinary communication, because there's definitely an order to things. And, you know, that can vary from place to place and case to case. Um, what are, you know, some of the interdisciplinary folks that you typically work with on your team? And how do you really navigate and figure out who you need to collaborate with once you get a referral? Mm -hmm. So in outpatient, um, I'm collaborating, this is going to sound silly, um, most in depth with the EMR system. (laughs) (laughs) Does this sound silly at all? (laughs) I am digging through that EMR system with a fine tooth comb to find any and all resources that are in there for their their history. Um, What other specialists they've seen that could give me information and insight on how to treat this patient. Um, If I can't find it there, then I'm calling doctor's offices and asking for them to fax that material over. if they're also being treated by PT and OT, I'm going and I'm talking to them, especially sometimes it works out where they get into see PT and OT before me. So they've already done the evaluation and started working with the patient and have met them. And I go and I talk to them about what they see. Um, and I say, okay, I have an order for XYZ. Have you seen any of that or had any difficulty with, you know, if it's communication or if it's cognition or whatever. And then I ask them about that and they have fantastic insights. You know, they're one of my best resources as well. So um, whoever sent the order over, that's their referring physician. And that could be anybody with a degree, it seems like. So when I, what I say, what I mean by that is um, the primary care physician, um, or it could be one of the specialists. So it could be coming from a neurologist, a pulmonologist, the ENT, GI, um, those are the ones I see the most come across. Sometimes though, I get an order from their primary care. Oh, sorry. Also the physical medicine and rehab doc. I get a lot of those as well because we have an inpatient rehab unit, um, associated with our hospital. So I see a lot of those follow-ups. Um, if it's coming from the primary care physician, sometimes I have to do a lot more digging and calling up the other specialists to get their notes. If they're not part of our system. So then they wouldn't be in my EMR and I have to call them directly and have that information faxed. And if I'm really lucky, I actually get to catch that doctor on the phone and ask them, which can be good or bad because these doctors, they see so many people. They, they like, you have to get, you have to have their chart up and be able to give them a pretty thorough, quick history so that they can think of who that is or give them time to pull up their own documentation. Um, so yeah. I think you you touch on something that's so important for all of us to remember. And even our new grads is, you know, I couldn't agree more that having a village of other professionals around, I learn the most from my colleagues, but what you said about remembering that reaching out to those colleagues that aren't other SLPs, the PTs, the OTs, the dietitians, I, agree wholeheartedly that I have learned so much from them, even sometimes more than my SLP colleagues about what I need to do with a patient based on what is going on, because it's the whole body. It's not just, well, it's just, I'm in my speech box. You're in your PT box. You're in your OT box. It's really looking at the patient as a whole. And Mm -hmm. so I think just remembering and for ourselves and reminding our listeners that utilize those other professionals and 
team members and the physicians and remembering that if we all, the more information we have, the better we can treat them and we're not going to have all the information. So Mm -hmm. it's so valuable. Yeah. I, I can give an example of a patient that I've worked with recently that kind of can illustrate sort of the bobbing and weaving I've had to do with collaborating with other professionals in this patient's plan of care. So they were referred for dysphagia therapy after an ACDF surgery. So that's anterior cervical disc fusion. And there was a hiccup during that surgery where there was an esophageal puncture. So an ENT surgeon went in to repair it and then actually had to go back in and repair the repair. So he had three surgeries in the span of probably like 36 hours. And um, that was earlier this year. Um, Due to those surgeries, he had a peg tube placed Um, And that's where he was getting his nutrition and hydration. So he was NPO. He had not been eating or drinking since earlier this year. And I'm seeing him in the late fall. Um, He worked extensively with other SLPs at different points of care and was transitioning from home health to see me an outpatient. And he'd had um, a couple video swallow studies during that time period. Um, And so I was using the information from those video swallow studies and the home health notes to progress this patient. Um, His primary care referred him, but I had to reach out to that ENT surgeon to get the surgery notes and the follow-up notes to see how he was doing. And one of the video swallow studies recommended doing vital stem therapy with this patient. Well, we need that in an order before we use it in a session. So I got in touch with a primary care, the referring physician, to send over another order that just allows me to do that. And, um, we had some back and forth, like phone tag. And one of the messages came back like, oh, they want the ENT to do it. And I'm like, the ENT doesn't do vital stem. Like we got our wires crossed what the doctor preferred because the doctor wasn't familiar enough with vital stem and with the surgeries and the rehab that the patient was going through to put that on an order. The physician wanted the ENT surgeon to approve the use of that modality. Um, so I was like, oh, okay. And so that was when I actually got the chance to, to talk with that ENT and he was like, oh yeah, sure. I'll put that order in. No problem. And then like, we talked about the patient a little bit. So as the patient's progressing through their therapy, they're ready to reduce the amount of bolus feeds because now he's taking in more oral food and drink. Um, so then I needed to get the phone number for this patient's dietitian. And so I'm on the phone talking to the dietitian and the dietitian is giving me information about like, oh, okay, based on XYZ weight, I think they can go from this number of bolus feeds a day down to this number. And, um, you know, just be sure to follow up with the patient. I'm like, definitely all this stuff. And it's just so great. Like all this collaboration with so many different, um, pieces of this patient's care. And it's so important to, have that time to make those phone calls and to do that. And I understand that we don't always get that luxury during the day, but this patient is getting like the best plan of care expeditiously. Like this could take longer if we weren't all in communication. Well, and it just reminds me, think about how well it's going with all that communication. And I know sometimes, like you said, there's just not enough time in the day and we think to what happened to those patients where there wasn't that communication and things fell through the cracks. And I know there's many times where I think, I mean, I wish I could go back and apologize to that patient, the family, because I know they didn't probably get exactly what they needed because there was those times where everything lines up. And then there's other times where it's 
you just hope, like, I hope they're okay now. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, one thing I want to really touch on with you as well, because you know, I do a lot of feeding and swallowing now with, with babies and little ones, uh, but did work with adults in the beginning of my career. And vividly remember, I mean, you don't work with the patient without the family. The family is a part of that patient's life and they should be a very important part. But I know sometimes, especially with dysphagia, I mean, feeding is such a, it's a, such an important part of our life. It encompasses, you know, something we do daily. It's part of most every big celebration. There's food involved in it. So it's, it's fun and it should be fun. And it's, it's, it's just a part of many aspects of our lives. And it's really hard when you have to make a change or do something that may impact that fun <laughs> in eating, um, mm -hmm. or something, you know, to keep them safe. And so when you're working with patients and their family members, how do you get that buy-in and, and create to where, because I remember there'd be times where they, I actually remember a man saying, there is that woman who comes in and takes away my water. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to be that person. So mm -hmm. how do you get that buy-in and have where you can feel like you're the professional making recommendations that are best, but also, you know, having the family and, and patient understand why you're making those recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And outpatient, I feel like it's a very different ball game because they're coming to me from their home where I am not, and I am not there to, you know, slap their wrist if they reach for that cup of like unthickened whatever. And that's definitely not who I am or what I want to be ever in, in their mind. So if they come in and um, they're, their prior level of care is recommended, we'll say like nectar thick liquids, for example. So I'm going to ask them if they're drinking that, or, you know, I'm going to ask them, are you drinking regular water? You know, if I say thin water, they're like, what's that? Why are you being redundantly? And so I'm like, you know, like regular liquids, are you thickening everything to nectar? And I, I like to ask in such a way so that they know they're not going to be judged and I'm not going to shame them for whatever their answer is. I, I just genuinely want to know. And I've, at least I hope people are, are mostly honest with me. And so if they tell me something that they think I don't want to hear, like, oh yeah, you know, I, I can't stand to thicken my coffee. So I still drink that regular. I don't thicken the coffee. I'm like, okay, how's that going? Um, have you noticed any difficulty, any coughing? Like, how long have you been doing that? I ask how long they've been doing that. So if it's been like four or five weeks that they've just been drinking regular coffee and they've had no adverse pulmonary effects, that's a pretty good indication. Like I'm happy with that. And I'm definitely not going to be like, you need to be thickening everything. You could be getting aspiration. Like I am not going to fear monger my patients. What I will do is provide them with the information and education for them to make informed health decisions on their own. I want them to know like what their risk level is and all of that. So I find that they come in and they're usually pretty motivated um, but they're also in their own sphere, their own world. So they are the captain of their ship again, and they can do what they want when they're at home. So really, I don't do diet policing so much. I do exercise policing. I'm like, have you been doing your exercises? No. Well, tell me, you know, what's getting in the way of that? Let's problem solve. Let's try to make it more conducive for you to complete X amount of exercises um, that I believe would help you in your recovery. So well, and sometimes it really does come down to a quality of life issue. And I had some patients that were like, you know, I'm this old, I know the risks and I want my water. I want my coffee. And mm -hmm. I'm not. And so 
you all work with kids where the parents can police them mm-hmm. and make sure that they're doing what they need to. But with adults, you're right. You know, they, they can, they're adults yeah. and we can make those recommendations and say, this is what I recommend. These are the potential consequences if not, mm-hmm. but ultimately, mm-hmm. yeah, you get to make the decisions for your own life. So yeah. Yeah, I believe in that autonomy. I believe that they have the right to make that decision. And it's my job to to give them the information to make the best decision for what their values are and what outcomes they want to see happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that social emotional piece in there with the dysphagia therapy is huge because it is a huge quality of life thing. And so like as a therapist, our job is to give the education and the tools, and then it's the patient's decision and how they follow through with it and what really their values are. I love that you said, you know, doing value-based therapy, because really that allows them to make decisions that align with their values. And then they can take a risk assessment with your help on, you know, what that, that looks like for for each, each thing. So that's great. There's, I'm sure all different types of outcomes, especially when giving a patient out autonomy in this outpatient setting, what does success look like for you in dysphagia outpatient rehab therapy? Like what does a really successful outcome that you feel really excited about look like? So success looks like a really happy patient to me. Um, when their goals are being met, then that means I've met my goals. Um, so when they're pleased with the outcome of therapy, then I'm happy because uh, it, it's it's so different for everyone. So I can't say that my goal for every patient that comes in for dysphagia therapy is a least restrictive diet um, or getting an NPO patient to a PO diet. Some Sometimes these things can't happen, but we can have a measurable impact on the patient. And this is where I like to use patient reported outcome measures or PROMs at the beginning of assessment and at the end, because sometimes in our therapy, we won't see an impairment change, but we'll see their ability to cope and their satisfaction with the help that they've received, improve their confidence and their quality of life. And that is so important. In fact, that's how Medicare is starting to measure reimbursements is that they want to see that the patient is satisfied with the care they've gotten um, because sometimes it's not realistic to, quote, fix certain problems that people come in with, um, but it is our job to help them and to improve their quality of life. And I think we have tools that we can do that with. Well, and I love, I, it's interesting you brought up that with Medicare because I recently just learned about this and I think this is so great because there are so many different ways of measuring success. And I I want this idea that, oh, we come in and we fix people, whether it's working with a child in a school, whether it's working with a patient, what that looks like, I think is very different to each individual patient. And you're exactly right. And I've worked with some uh, children that they're never going to not have a G-tube. That will be part of their life forever. So we have to look at where can we get that best balance to where they may be able to take some things PO, but the rest, luckily, with this science and technology, they can thrive mm-hmm. and do so well by getting the rest of their intake via their G-tube. And so, you know, it might not look like the success that we think, but it really is a success. And like you said, there is just, 
if the patient feels good about it, if they're happy and they feel like it's made a difference in their life, I can't imagine having a better success at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you started out, I'm sure you look back and think, this is the Leanne then, <laughs> this is the Leanne now, uh, as we all do. And when you think about starting out, what are some things that you know now that you wish that you had known in the beginning when starting out working with treating patients with dysphagia? This is one of my favorite questions because when I was starting out, I was like, I'm going to be able to answer this question so well, because all I could think of was what I didn't know that I felt like I needed to know in that moment, but I didn't even know what I needed to know. So looking back, um, I would have really appreciated a much stronger foundation in the variations of the normal swallow. I was taught an ideal swallow function. But what we know now is that, for example, people can um, trigger the pharyngeal swallow when the bolus is even in the piriform sinus, and that can be normal. That's not a deficit, and that's not something that we need to treat in therapy. Um, And I wish I had a much stronger foundation in presbyphagia versus dysphagia. Knowing the aging swallow and knowing the variations of normal, I think, would help us not over-treat. Um, certain things and maybe put people on restrictions that aren't necessarily necessary. So that would have been really helpful. And I'm really, really glad I know it now. (laughs) Um, The other thing, the other two things are Langmore's predictors of aspiration pneumonia and Ashford's three pillars of aspiration pneumonia. Having those help me form a decision matrix tree for the patient, knowing um, what may be higher risk levels for them of developing an aspiration pneumonia lets me know how how I don't need to necessarily police their diet or maybe how much stronger I need to be in encouraging them to consider these risks as they have elevated signs, for example. Um, Whereas before it would have just been like, oh, well, you aspirate, so clearly you shouldn't eat or drink. Like it used to be so black and white. And and now I have such a a wider, bigger view. It makes decision-making a lot more challenging because there's a lot more uh, boxes, so to speak, to to go down and consider with each patient. But it makes that, that, that patient's individualized care much better because I'm treating what that patient's going through and not just the fact that maybe they aspirated or not. Because if you work with the head and neck cancer population, um, they're generally very active if they're out, you know, after they've had their, uh, radiation and chemotherapy. Um, so like I'll see people a year or two after that. So they're, they're otherwise healthy, they're mobile, and they could be aspirating daily and they're not developing aspiration pneumonia. So would I still have them be NPO because they're aspirating, but they're not developing the pneumonia because they're active and they're otherwise healthy. Their body is handling the aspiration. So it's, it's knowing things like that now that I didn't in the beginning, I probably would have been like scared and been like, well, I can't believe you're drinking. That's terrible. And I may have dehydrated them, putting that fear of aspiration in them, which would lead to more negative health outcomes. Being dehydrated just, wow, spirals into a lot of things for our uh, senior population. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you hit the nail on the head and that making more informed strategic decisions as your career goes on, I think is pertinent to really no matter what specialization that you're in within our fields and seeking out those resources that can help 
aid those decisions. So you're not over-diagnosing or over-treating someone and understanding that full spectrum of variation is so important. And really, I mean, again, this goes for whether it be dysphagia or something more pediatric focused, like this is a real thing. And the human population is, there's so many variations and so many complications. And so finding those tools to help you learn how to make those decisions with more of a fine tooth comb versus, you know, a blanket, it can be Mm -hmm. super, super helpful. So that's a great piece of advice. Something I know that we're both passionate about that we talked about a little bit before this podcast is, you know, avoiding burnout while working in the field, because being Staying passionate and loving your job is something that also allows us to give best patient care when we can show up every day as our best selves. So tell us a little bit about your progression of self-care throughout your career while working in outpatient rehab setting. Yeah. So I think it's kind of on um, two different fronts. Um, Because for me, I was taking a lot of stress home that was the stress of not feeling competent enough in enough areas to do enough good. <laughs> so I I just kind of would come home just feeling exhausted from mentally pouring myself out every day, struggling to do a quick search and try to find something, you know, right before a session or um, prepare for like the next session when, you know, we have like no time. And so what I needed to do that I did not do then is I just relied on my computer for help. And that's, I mean, that's one thing you can do, but it was the only thing I was doing. And I wasn't asking for help. I wasn't managing my like professional work competency stress effectively. And it was really damaging. It was not healthy. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm still learning how to ask for help and it's baby steps for me. Um, but it's been really helpful. Like if I have a full day in outpatient and I have a student at the same time, and I need a little cushion to spend some more time with my student to um, help them learn how to document or to prepare for an eval that I want them to go solo on. Um, I can reach out to my colleagues who also treat outpatient and see if they have an opening in their schedule um, because they're primarily working on the inpatient rehab unit or the acute care and ask if they could take over a patient for me. And that would have like never entered my mind before to do something like that because I, I take so much ownership over stuff. I'm like, well, if it's on my schedule, it's my responsibility and I just have to knuckle down and do it. But we're on a team and we're here to help each other out. And I would a hundred percent do that for my colleague who needed me to take over a patient on their caseload if they needed to do something. So why wouldn't I ask for the help when I need it to? So that was one area. That's huge. I think that that's something that a lot of SLPs struggle with is just asking for help, whether it be for coverage or even just how do I do something? Or even I feel like I'm not really taking care of myself and I'm really stressed out. Like, can you help me? And I love that now I'm in a position where I can have those conversations with our clinicians we work with, but it's so rare I get those calls that I know there's so many people who feel this way and would benefit from just having a sounding board even to talk about these things with. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's super important. Um, I've been learning a lot about stress management as well and how if we manage our stress effectively, it won't continue to build and grow and result in burnout because I was feeling the strong winds of burnout early in my career because I wasn't utilizing my resources. Like I mentioned, I was relying on the computer and not asking for, for help from colleagues when my, I did to a couple of my colleagues, um, in my early career, uh, but they didn't treat pediatrics. And I was, I was seeing the whole lifespan in that first outpatient job and, but I stopped there. I didn't continue to reach out to other SLPs, to my graduate uh, school friends who I knew could help me. Like it was uh, like looking back, I'm like, Leanne, come on now. But of course that whole hindsight's 2020. So um, on Speech Uncensored, I interviewed two SLPs and a physical therapist about um, burnout, about stress management and what that looks like for the rehab professional. And I got three really unique perspectives that have um, kind of finally like sunk in and I've started practicing and implementing um, what they taught me on those conversations that I had with them on the podcast. Um, And those were really, really helpful. So like Jesse Andrix came on and talked about what stress management looks like for the SLP. And she has like really great tools about like movement, um, mindfulness, and I forgot the third one. I should have written it down. So like, I've been able to like slowly over time, implement these things and make them habits. And that's been really helpful. Um, and Tavana Boggs was on, um, and she's a physical therapist. So she talked about like what we all share in the rehab setting about the, the pressures that we all face and, and how we can achieve career satisfaction when we take ownership over these things. And then Ginger Jones came on and she talked about it from um, a business owner and employer perspective and what it's like managing her employees, her SLP employees, as they handle stress. And so she's, she's been an SLP. She's had her own career stress and now she's taking what she's learned and um, working with her employees on managing their day-to-day, their SLP stress. And so just amazing insights from each of these three professionals that they're just happy to share and like pass on that information. So those things were really helpful to me that I've been implementing since those conversations. Well, and I'm so glad you're bringing this up. And I feel like now it's becoming more where people feel like, I mean, burnout's been going on forever. This is not new, but I feel like it's, we're in a place where people feel like they can safely talk about it Mm -hmm. and it's becoming more accepted. And I think that's so important because before people were just not talking about it and then having a nervous breakdown and then (laughs) you know they couldn't be effective to they weren't able to continue to give back to a profession they maybe probably were really good at and and I think I'm so glad that we're talking about this and it's not a sign of weakness and you know this one as you may be well aware many SLPs are perfectionists we don't feel like we can make mistakes we want to do everything just right and asking for help and feeling like we don't know it all, sometimes people think, well, that's a sign of weakness. And I know I follow some professional groups where I've seen new grads or people unfamiliar with an area say, well, I was afraid to even ask because I feel like I get this, what do you mean you don't know this? And why are you asking that? And 
that should not be the case. We should be able mm-hmm. to talk. We should be able to go and say, I need help mm-hmm. and, and have people help. Because one thing I realized is that most people want to help. We mm-hmm. think, oh, I don't want to burden them. I don't want, most people want to help. And so by asking them, you're, you're able to protect yourself and help yourself continue to be a good professional, but also, again, people like to help. And so I think that is so important that you, you stress that Mm -hmm. and anybody listening, whether you've been a therapist for years or new, you know, I always tell the new grads, anytime I'm working with our clinical fellows, um, do not suffer in silence. Yes. Let somebody know, are you struggling? What can we do to help? Because if you don't say anything, nobody knows. We assume it's good. And then I don't want you to burn out because you're an asset to this profession. So I love that you mentioned those things. One of my favorite remembrances of just my, I don't know, ridiculousness was when I was having the conversation with Tavana. She was um, talking about all these things that, you know, you as the person need to do. And I was like, wait, I thought you were going to tell me, like, support me on everything that was wrong that was going on around me and how none of this was my fault and how everyone around me needed to change. And I was actually perfect. I was already doing everything right. But she was like, no, no, Leanne, like, (laughs) you need to take ownership that you are part and parcel of this problem. And it's because in, in my particular instance, it's because I was not speaking out. I was not letting it known that I was that I needed help. I wasn't asking for help. And that was my problem. I wasn't communicating um, until it was, it was too late. Like I got really angsty and had like a low key, big key blowout at work. I'm really embarrassed about, but that happened because I didn't ask for help because I wasn't managing my stress and I wasn't communicating. So I I have to learn the hard way, apparently, (laughs) you know, go big or go home. It's (laughs) we say like, sometimes you're the person that gives somebody to go home and say, you'll never guess what happened to work today. (laughs) 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 Well, and I know as you, you bring up stress and, um, you know, we, times are a little bit different now and especially working in the medical industry with the pandemic. So I would love to know, you know, normally this, there's, this job brings many moments of stress, but especially probably now. And what do you do to manage stress and how do you maintain that work-life balance? What have you learned? Mm. One of um, my favorite things, because it was easy to do, and um, I like easy, (laughs) I like to start off easy and like build, build up, get, you know, more confidence and tackle harder things. So um, one thing that I started doing that was advice from Jesse Andrix was to, um, and it may be Tavana too, I don't know, could have been all three of them told me to do this. You um, just write down one thing each day that you're grateful for. It doesn't have to be like big things. It can be just like, I'm really grateful the sun is shining today and something different the next day and something different the next day. Um, you build a habit of gratitude and it changes your brain. Like literally they've done neuroimaging. It changes the way your brain functions. And that was one of my problems is I was always focusing on what wasn't working, what wasn't going right, what the problems were. And when I started that one simple habit, I started living an attitude of gratitude and it, it was evident. I had more patience with my patients like, and my work. And when problems came up, I could handle them better. Um, I didn't have like that snap, like reaction to them 
I could go about my day. Like it was, that was one thing that really helped me. Um, and then I did that for like quite a few months and then I kind of like fell out of that habit and I could tell, I could tell a difference that that's one thing that I have, like, I, I need to do like literally for eternity. Have you ever had patients that are like, okay, so how long do I actually have to do this exercise? Like, this is that, that thing where you're like for the rest of your life, <laughs> because it is good. <laughs> This is not short-term. This is Mm long-term. You bring up a great point though, that learning how to manage your stress and learning how to maintain a positive work environment and work-life balance isn't something that you flip a switch and suddenly it's there for you as a gift. It's Mm -hmm. something that you can have at some point in your career. And once you stop those good habits, it falls out. You can come back to those good habits and it's an ongoing practice. I'm a yoga instructor and I'm always like, this is a practice. This isn't like a destination. We call it a practice because you need to keep doing it. And so I love that thinking about your self-care and maintaining a positive work environment as a lifelong practice. And it's not something that you will arrive at a destination and suddenly for the next 20 years of your career, it will be like a happy, sunshiny rainbow place. And so that's, that's a great piece of wisdom. I mean, you've dropped a lot of wisdom during this podcast, but that was a great piece of wisdom to end on because I think it's important for us all to remember, especially during these more tumultuous times where that, you know, everyone's going through it right now. And so keeping up communication with your colleagues, asking for help, having daily practices. I mean, all good things. Leanne, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today and educate our listeners. And I'm so grateful that you actually have a podcast of your own. So our listeners can continue to learn from you and maybe even take PDs from you because it's it's so important, all of the things you're talking about. So thank you so much. Well, what a pleasure and what an honor to be on here. This was such a treat. Like, I'm like, really, it's a delight. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate the work that you two are doing here as well. Like, I love our speech therapy podcasts. They're so important for having these conversations. This listening to the podcast that we're on before I started one is what encouraged me and inspired me to give back and contribute to the field in this way as well. They're so meaningful and so helpful. So thank you so much for the work that you guys do as well. Yes. And thank you so much, Leanne. I can't you know, echo enough what Alyssa said. And I encourage people as well to go to your website because you not only you practice what you preach and you are so supportive to the SLP community and have so many wonderful resources. So please go check out her website. Please check out the podcast. They're so well done. And we really thank you for your time. It's been, it's been a treat for us as well. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And if you'd like to get in touch with us at the podcast, send us an email at SLP full disclosure at gowithadvanced.com. And each episode's show notes are available at the website, gowithadvanced.com. 
backslash SLP full disclosure. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to get the latest updates. And if you want to give us a little shout out, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Also, special thanks to Jonathan Carey for producing this episode and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. And as always, this episode was powered by Advanced Travel Therapy. See you next time. Mm -hmm.